Today we're going to talk about dimensional reduction and its importance in analyzing neural population activity. For this discussion, we welcome back Vakash Gilja, Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at UC San Diego. We're also joined by Conrad Cording, Professor of Bioengineering and Neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. Chathan Pandaranath, Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Emory University and Georgia Tech, and Carson Stringer, Group Leader at Genelia Farm Research Campus. In this episode, we dive right into the deep end, so for those of you who are new to the topic, I've asked our own Aditya Singh to prepare a short explainer video about a dimensional reduction. Without further ado, I leave it to Aditya. This episode of Neurotech Pub is a little bit special, as we're diving into a fundamental, but often misunderstood concept in neural engineering, dimensionality and dimensionality reduction. When we first think about dimensionality, a couple of real-world ideas readily come to mind. We see dimensions all around us, living in our 3D world, exploring new ones with VR and AR, and watching our online personas grow in a 2D world of screens and social media. But more generally, a dimension isn't necessarily a simple length, width, height, or time. To many scientists, the dimensionality of a data set is the number of columns of data in an Excel sheet. When we work with high-dimensional data sets, each dimension refers to a unique observation of a real-world phenomena acquired at some sampling frequency. No single column of data, or dimension, can explain the whole phenomena, but when we have hundreds or thousands of unique observations of the same real-world event from different perspectives at different sampling frequencies interacting with each other over time, we can understand the phenomena in aggregate. But such a data set contains much more information than the pure underlying structure that drives this activity. This underlying structure can be understood more efficiently with far fewer features, or in data speak, in a lower dimensional representation. This low dimensional representation can reconstruct the thousands of original observations across time with much less features and more efficiently encoding information. Another useful benefit of this low D representation is that it allows you to reconstruct the original information with much less noise, squeezing the important bits of information into less features, removing the jitter and randomness that comes with real-world data. A neat example to understand this is if we look at a Pride of Boston, the Formula One racing track. Here we have race cars hurtling down the track at adrenaline pumping speeds and fans eagerly watching the cars cling to every turn. Now imagine if we gave speed guns to a hundred of these fans with different views of the racetrack and told them to take recordings every time they saw something fly by the track. We would get a hundred streams of data showing each person's speed gun reading from different angles and at different times during the race. With 100 people all collecting data around the racetrack, we get a 100-dimensional data set, where each dimension is a unique person's observation of cars racing around the track at different sampling frequencies. Expanding this to 1,000, 10,000, and 100,000 fans with speed guns, and this suddenly becomes a very high-dimensional data set with many more perspectives. But the underlying structure, race cars going around a 2D track, is still the same. Now let's imagine giving this data set to a data scientist with no understanding of where this data set came from or how it was populated. At first sight, they're going to see an Excel sheet. 
hundreds of thousands of rows stretching for some time, with some visual similarities between different rows and recognizable patterns. But to get a better sense of what this data is actually observing, the data scientists can use a dimensional reduction technique to extract the simpler, lower dimensional underlying activity that can be used to reconstruct that original high dimensional speed gun data set. For example, if we reduce this 100 dimensional data set to two, we see the underlying activity that is driving our data. In this case, it is the race car circuit which makes sense as the changes in velocity for the race cars are based on the turns and straights it can take on this convenient two-dimensional XY grid. We can therefore reconstruct the 100-dimensional data set of car speeds based on this two-dimensional mapping of a circuit. This lower dimensional space in neural data becomes the dynamical systems that drive the activity of hundreds and thousands of different neurons. When we record from a lot of brain data, our sensors capture the activation of neurons, and we can see this activity in a sparse format called spiking, or firing rates. This almost binary code is how the networks in your brain communicate to each other to get things done, whether it's moving, talking, or thinking. Each electrode, like each F1 fan holding a speed gun, becomes a row a feature, a dimension in our high-dimensional, large-scale neural data sets that use thousands of these sensors to record from thousands of neurons. But what we want to understand is the underlying force in the brain, the racetrack that is triggering these neurons to activate. We can then use similar dimensional reduction techniques to model these high-dimensional data sets as manifolds that constrain this neural activity space unraveling dynamically over time across some feature-rich axis that we call this latent subspace. Here we can more efficiently understand how these neurons are tied to each other. We can visualize not just the speed of the race cars or the activity of the neurons, but the racetrack that is the underlying trajectory guiding the patterns of activity we see from thousands of neurons in the brain over time. The denoising process of dimensional reduction also removes the randomness and noise we see from single isolated neurons and instead allows scientists to predict the more important stimuli-dependent brain activity. In this podcast, some of the leading experts from the neurotech field are going to be discussing how they utilize their understanding of this latent neural activity space with respect to the high-dimensional neural datasets that they collect. I hope this analogy has given you a more intuitive understanding of dimensionality and how it applies to neural decoding. Cheers. Today we're again supporting our local brewery, Jester King. Nice. Well, if I had known that you'll all be drinking, I would have gotten myself a beer before. It's we it's Neurotech this. Pub, Conrad. I didn't know. Okay, in that case, can you guys wait for? Yeah, one we can more wait. Minute? We can wait. I was out of beer, so I, I mixed up a quick cocktail. It's uh, not very good, but <laughs> but it'll do. It the actually job. doesn't look very good. To be honest, it looks like the ice <laughs> is melted. What about you, Carson? I have water, but I'll I'll be fine. I guess. <laughs> So wait, where are you located? Where is Paradromics located? We're in Austin, Texas. Cool. I guess it's definitely a good place to be now. Yeah, definitely. And you're in Genalia, right? Yeah. I love Genalia Farm. It is a very it is a very nice place to do science. They're no longer called farm. Oh, it's not a farm anymore? 
No, it's and it's very important to them that they're no longer a farm. Oh, no, it's not called that? Technically, now it's Janelia Research Campus, but I, I'm not going to correct people. It's... <laughs> I was thinking if everyone could give just a, a really quick introduction um, yourself, where you are, and... And also, a lot of young sort of aspiring scientists and entrepreneurs have, and, uh, and engineers have been watching this, and uh, I think they're very interested in knowing how one comes to the various disciplines of neurotechnology. And, and I think particularly, you know, in neural decoding and computational neuroscience, there's so many different paths to get there. I think it'd be very interesting for people to hear how, how your own paths kind of brought you here. So do you want to kick that off? Give us an example or like... Maybe Vakash, can you can you can you tell us tell us yeah, a little bit about sure. you know how you got to I'm not I'm I'm not even sure I'd call myself a computational neuroscientist, but <laughs> I can give my background. So um, I'm currently an associate professor at UC San Diego in electrical and computer engineering. Um, I got here um, from a longstanding interest in neuroscience and engineering. Um, in my undergrad, I majored both in ECE and brain and cog sci, um, and that was mostly due to indecision. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to focus on, um, but that, that allowed me to, to take some depth on the engineering side, and uh, the, looking back the way I picked my classes in brain and cog sci, I was getting a lot of breadth in, in neuroscience, uh, and then I went over to Stanford to do my PhD with Krishna Shinoy, uh, developing uh, neural prostheses. Uh, and so there, I was able to really take a depth in neural engineering, uh, really integrating those two fields I'd been playing in, um, and then stayed on uh, as a postdoc, uh, working on uh, clinical translation, so getting uh, a little more depth on, on the clinical side of the problem, uh, and that really drove me to, to be where I am today. Uh, along the way, I got to hang out with, with that other guy on screen, Chathan, uh, during the postdoctoral years, I guess I started out as an as an undergrad. I was um, also very um, I was definitely not good at picking one direction. So I triple majored in computer engineering and physics and a humanities major on you know science policy. Um, but none of that was anywhere near biology. I thought I was you know done with biology, and then I went to to grad school at Cornell. Um, to I was planning on going into electrical engineering, um, working on uh, solid-state devices and maybe quantum computing, you know, pretty pretty undecided at that point, but very, very different from, from neuroscience. Um, around that time, uh, so my dad, uh, he has Parkinson's disease, and he had, he's had it for a while. Um, so, uh, but it really, you know, when I was growing up, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't really affected him when I, affecting him when I started grad school. Um, that was around the time when things started to get pretty bad. Um, he had to stop working. He wasn't able to drive on his own anymore. Um, you know, just Parkinson's is a degenerative condition where um, you know you you lose control of your movements to some degree, um, and so he you know he couldn't reliably move, which meant he couldn't you know drive himself. There was there was one time when he was driving to work, and uh, I remember he just had to pull over because he, you know, he couldn't control the car. And so, you know, my mom had to, had to go pick him up. And that's when I, you know, kind of, it, it really just hit me like how serious this was. So a couple things, you know, one, it was, that was probably my first real exposure to neurodegenerative diseases and how they can really af affect people. And it was very personal. But two, um, around that time was when he got uh, deep brain stimulators implanted. Um, 
So for people who maybe aren't familiar, deep brain stimulation is where uh, you know, a neurosurgeon will implant electrodes into subcortical structures that are important for movement. Um, and you know, it was, it was pretty amazing to see when, when you implant these things and you, you turn them on and start delivering current. Like we, we have very little idea, I'd say, how, how this entire system works, but you just turn these things on and it's like, it's night and day. And you know, now my dad really can't live without those stimulators. Um, so it was kind of, it was a really cool experience to see like every, everything I, you know, was interested in in terms of electrical engineering being applied to this really complicated, complex system, which I didn't understand, but it turns out a lot of other people didn't understand either, but you could really make a difference in people's lives. So that kind of inspired me to take a sharp course correction and head over to neuroengineering and computational neuroscience. Um, so PhD uh, was in, in the visual system and understanding how information is transmitted from the eye to the brain and developing visual prostheses to help people uh, with, um, you know, ultimately, hopefully, people with macular degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa or other causes of blindness. And then afterwards, took another completely, <laughs> turned in a very different direction, um, got to hook up with this guy over here, Vikash, um, with uh, Krishna Shinoy and Jamie Henderson over at Stanford working on clinical uh, uh, neural prostheses, which was really, um, as I think Vikash was saying, just an amazing experience to, to really see translational neuroengineering and um, work with people directly. Um, so, uh, you know, it was a, a long and, and winding path, but I really, I think, got hooked on uh, the power of, of BCIs and what they can really, really do for people. And that's where I am now. Yeah, just to add to this, I think these brain stimulators are the closest thing we have to magic in all of neuroscience in a way. Not like it's, it's, it's you turn them on and lives are better. And it's just wonderful to see that. Yeah, truly amazing, you know, especially when we have all these de debates about, like, what do we really know about the brain? And <laughs> oftentimes I come out of that thinking, you know, not, not a whole lot, to be honest. Yet, <laughs> with this very simple uh, device, you know, we can work magic. It's pretty cool. Also a reminder that, that semi-educated guess and check can be really impactful. And, we, you know... Kind of in our day jobs, we're we're very focused on on understanding mechanism, and knowing what we know with complete rigor, but some sometimes on the translational side, you just gotta you gotta try it out, right? Carefully, but you gotta try it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think of really extreme example of that is um, early vaccinations. I mean, vaccines preceded, you know, immunology by decades. Um, Hey, that, that that's I agree with you it's pretty impressive what you can do, what you can what medical science has done empirically you know and, and often leading the kind of mechanistic work I started in engineering uh, more like some of you but then I I took a nonlinear dynamics course with Jonathan Rubin at Pitt and I fell in love with chaos theory and all all of this work and and um, modeling neural circuits in that way and so I switched to an applied math and physics major and then I took a course with Byron Yu um, who some of you might know and he convinced me to go to Gatsby for my PhD, um, so Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit at University College London. Um, and yeah, that's and so I've been combining kind of what I've learned in in math and and computer science, uh, like and um, yeah, to try to make good tools uh, for the community to try to 
understand large neural data. Wow, that's awesome. At some point, I'll have to thank Byron for steering you into our field. That's very well done, Byron. <laughs> that's a win for neuroscience, I think. Conrad, what was your what was your entrance to computational neuroscience? Yeah, it's interesting. I started as a physicist, and in a way, I always wanted to become a physicist. But then uh, around term three or so, uh, I started really being interested in biology and molecular biology. And then I did this rotation in a neuroscience lab, and I just madly fell in love with neuroscience. What I was doing back then, I was looking at um, video microscopy of like little cultures for, of neurons. And I still remember how I had my culture on video taken over by lots of bacteria because I wasn't so good at it. So, uh, but like uh, just seeing the, the neurites grow in a dish was just really making a huge difference to me. I then tried to convince the physicist in Heidelberg that, that in a way lots of aspects of neuroscience are almost like physics. So they should let me get my undergraduate degree in in doing neuroscience and they were adamant that that was a no and so then I defected to Zurich because the physicist in Zur Zurich did not think that neuroscience wasn't physics they thought that there's a lot of area in between and it was just wonderful then kind of moving from my PhD from the end of my undergraduate thesis and from my PhD to Zurich where I developed really an interest in computational neuroscience and then uh, well, my path wasn't very direct from then, right? Like then when, uh, so I simulated neurons while being in Zurich and I failed as an experimentalist recording from cat primary visual cortex. And then I moved to London doing mostly movement experiments. And then I moved to MIT working with Josh Tenbaum, mostly doing statistical models. And then I joined the faculty of Northwestern for a while and, um, uh, rising through the ranks, like basically always combining these area, the areas that I love in that area, which is a physics-y way of thinking about models and technology and a data analysis focus and like kind of really caring about biology. And um, now I, I joined the University of Pennsylvania about three years ago. And um, there I again, the people in my lab again combine all of them. And more recently, I've been very interested in how we can teach computational neuroscience. And we, uh, we ran for the first time NeuroMatch Academy this summer, where Carson was one of the great speakers. And um, we had uh, thousands of students that were participating at the same time. And we really tried, them, tried to give them an understanding on how to think about neural data. And it was just a great opportunity to link with them. Where are most of those students coming from? What are their backgrounds? Are they coming from physics, engineering, math, biology? Yeah, all of them. So uh, cognitive science as well, I should add to your list. Um, there are people who come from a strong computational background who learn about biology. People who come from a strong biology background learn about statistics and everything in between. A lot of experimentalists that realize that thinking about data is useful for what they're doing. It, it, it was really like this great experience of people coming together from all directions. Carson, what was your experience as a, as a speaker there? Yeah, so the, the speaking part was the easy part, I think. I, I actually was also um, co-managing the TAs uh, with another great uh, person, Kate Bonin. 
And so that was, um, it was really fascinating to watch um, people learning over Zoom. So we had these small pods of about eight students with one TA teaching assistant. And so we kind of told the TAs kind of how to organize the sessions and how to guide uh, the students through the material. And it, I think overall, we were very impressed with how positive the experience was, despite the fact that it was all virtual. And the fact that it's able to have such a broad reaching impact um, because it's virtual, uh, I think made it, in, in my opinion, a, a big success. Yeah, the TA experience was the soul of Neomatch. It, it was really, it brought people together in small groups. And it was just fantastic how well the TAs were able to guide their teams with uh, Carson's help. And are you doing it again for people who might be interested in applying? What should they do? Yes, uh, the plan is that this will be a yearly program now. The, I mean, there was so much interest in there. And, uh, and we believe that these computational techniques, and like even if you're an experimentalist, making sense of the data is one of the big problems for all of us. And so I think that therefore there's like a real need for people to to learn those skills. And therefore, I think there's a real need for like a large summer school to exist every year. So getting into neural data, one of the things that the main thing I'd like to talk about today is um, the use of dimensional reduction in analyzing uh, population data and, and, and neural recordings. Um, that's something that to all of you seems very natural and intuitive, but to a lot of people coming from the biology angle, they may not have heard about those techniques when they were coming up through their undergrad. And, and I think it actually is kind of conceptually accessible. And so I, I think it would be great if we could talk about, um, first of all, what is dimensional reduction? Could, any, could anyone take a stab at a, a broad definition? Okay, why, why, why don't I get started? So in a typical experiment, now let's, let's start with the kind of data. In a typical experiment, we might get data from 100 nerve cells at a time. So we have the spikes as a function of time. So we would have a matrix where we have 100 neurons by 10,000 time points or something. If we are very lucky and are great and gifted with producing the right kind of data, like Carson, we might have a lot of uh, more like thousands of neurons at the same time, but like, um, uh, and uh, and of course, as we know, there's companies trying to push those numbers harder, uh, higher. But what we have is we have these matrices where we have lots of neurons and lots of time points. Now, when it comes to the things that we care about, maybe like uh, like much of my background is in movement control. And like you want to move your arm. If you want to build a prosthetic device, you want to know how people move. What matters there? It matters kind of this low dimensional control of what I do with the arms. So the idea is that instead of having something that is 1,000 channels over time, I want to have something that is maybe 20 channels over time where the interesting things happen in the data. Now, defining interesting is very complicated, and that's where a lot of like the tricks in dimensionality reduction happen. And um, But it's the idea of we have the activity of all those neurons over time. How can we represent it as the activity in some some low dimensional space. And let's say in the ca case of the arm, you could say good ways of describing m the movement of my arm or the representation in my head might be basically X and Y position, maybe the velocity and the in, uh, that we have maybe the acceleration over time, which is a relatively low dimensional signal. So dimensionality reduction is basically find the low dimensional spaces in which the interesting things happen. Kind of uh, summarizing a, a little bit, is, 
in, in a very simple way, it's to take uh, data that may have a more complex representation and finding a more distilled, simpler form for representing those data without eliminating the important parts of the data, right? Taking something complex and giving yourself a simpler explanation, Can, which is does core, core to the science. Does example of dimensionality reduction outside of neuroscience in, in a maybe you know, tangible practice that someone might be able to latch on to, easily visualized? Yeah, so here's a fun example. In fact, one that we used at NeuroMatch Academy. Uh, English language has countless words. So you could say texts live in this super high dimensional space. You can say every document I can describe by the set of all the words that are used within that document. The problem is this is still a super, super mega high dimensional space. So what we do with dimensionality reduction in text is we represent the paper with maybe thousand words out of a dictionary of hundred thousand words in maybe a 600 dimensional space. So every word then is in this space that is relatively low dimensional that tells me what this document is about. And we can use this low dimensional space to then ask to which level is a paper that Vikash writes similar to a paper that Conrad writes or similar to a paper that Carson writes. And that's really useful if we want to understand large collections of texts. Other, other examples that are really common in day-to-day -day life um, you know, we, we all talk uh, uh, to our smartphones, we all uh, have our smartphones take pictures of things. Along the way, the representation of images, the representation of acoustics um, are projected from the original higher dimensional sensing space. In the case of images, you have tons of pixels, you have millions of pixels. In the case of audio, you have the individual samples over time. In both cases, there is a lower dimensional representation of those data that are generated prior to the machine understanding it. Um, and so along the way, there's a simpler explanation. Probably a lot of people that have touched neural data in some, in some way have heard about the cursive dimensionality. And um, what does the cursive dimensionality mean for neural decoding? And, and how are dimensional reduction techniques used to overcome that? Because it seems, it, you know, it seems probably strikes many as counterintuitive that you have, you know, the paradromics, the Neuralinks, the Genelias of the world trying to push toward these really high channel count recordings. And the first thing that everyone wants to do is then reduce the dimensionality of the recording. It, you know, it seems counterintuitive, but I think maybe some of you could help. Yeah, so, so let's briefly talk about the cause of dimensionality. So... If I, if I have data that lies in a very high dimensional space, it's very, there are lots of ways of mapping that, um, that data onto something low dimensional. Not, not like if I say want to steer a, an arm movement prosthetic, I want to have maybe a four dimensional output or something. And um, if I have lots and lots of inputs to such a system, we have a big matrix effectively, namely from each of the inputs to each of the outputs. And it's very hard to represent, uh, to estimate that. And it's not just hard for our algorithms, but there's a lot of different ways of getting the same quality of a mapping. And because there's so many different ways, we need a lot of data to know which one is the right one. If we can use dimensionality reduction, 
we can reduce this problem with lots of dimensions to a problem with far fewer dimensions, for which we need much less data to train, which therefore is a really useful way of reformulating it. So in general, the problem of, uh, of the cause of dimensionality is if we have data that has lots of dimensions, it makes the estimation problems that we have more difficult. Uh, just in terms of what, what can we do with this high dimensional data, we, we want to think about, like Conrad was saying, there's many ways to reduce the dimensionality, but we want to think about ways that take advantage of the kind of structure we think we know about that, that's in the data already, that we know the way that neurons fire and their probability of connections and, and these sorts of things. Uh, so th there's ways to kind of add those kinds of principles to dimensionality reduction techniques as well that might make this problem slightly easier. Although I, I would say it's definitely unsolved at this point. Yeah, and uh, on a practical side, like you can, you can use data-driven approaches where you're looking for structure in the actual data traces that Conrad described. And then I, I think, Carson, what you're suggesting is you could also use your, your knowledge, your domain-specific knowledge, right? If you, if you know something about the underlying physiology in the case of neuroscience, uh, you can bring that knowledge to play, right? Like a, you know, a simple example would be um, if you had uh, sensors that like electrocorticography sensors that uh, measure data through volume conductance, if you know where those electrodes are in the brain relative to one another, uh, you may be able to leverage some of that anatomical information uh, to set some, you know, priors, some pre-established knowledge on on what the structure might look like. Um, I, I think the, the some of the bigger questions that Carson that you are alluding to are, um, you know, there there may be um, uh, kind of more um, there might be more generalized rules in in the structure of data that we can learn over time from experience on particular problems uh, and uh, bring that knowledge to bear on new data sets. So when we talk about dimensionality reduction, I think I, I think I want to geek out just like for one minute, if you'll indulge me there. So, so, so the most commonly used dimensionality reduction technique is what's called principal component analysis, where I say the first principal component is the one dimension that describes most of the variance of the inputs that we have. What does that mean? We have lots of neurons. They're all correlated with one another. The first principal component, if you want, is the axis along which most neurons co-vary up or down. The second one is the axis where most of the remaining variance happens, and so on and so forth. Now, what does that mean? It means that the first principal component that I get out of dimensionality reduction in that case is something where there's a lot of change happening over time and where there's relatively little noise. So the, the signal to noise ratio is biggest. So we have a lot of clean signal and very little noise if we look at the first principal component. And as we go further down the list of principal components, they have less signal relative to the amount of noise that they have. So if you want, like the first principal component is the dimension along which we can learn most or know most at a given point of time. And that also means that if we do principal component analysis, we can usually get most of, describe most of what's happening in a group of neurons with the smallest number of parameters. And therefore, we will have basically a representation that has less noise. And that is why almost all dimensionality reduction techniques that people use in a way relate to principal component analysis. I want to push back on, on one thing you said, which was 
the, the idea that um, looking for the the axes of highest variance are going to allow us to zero in on signal versus noise because th this is where I, and I think you're you're trying to give a big picture but I want to kind of dive in here a little bit where the assumptions we make with respect to dimensionality reduction are going to obviously affect the result and in the case of firing neurons um, we know roughly you can model uh, firing neurons with a Poisson process what does that mean that means that um, you know the mean firing rate and the variance uh, are roughly equal um, which means that if you have a higher firing rate you have higher variance if you believe the firing rate is the true information and not the spike counts then that means that your highest variance neurons uh, are going to be the ones that the the, the first principal component tilts towards so those those in a way are your noisier neurons so th this is where you know some of these choices uh, we have to make really carefully relative to our knowledge of the problem and the underlying data and I I, I want to give a shout out to Byron Yu there because he was the first person to teach me that uh, that principle Carson um, some of your uh, very known work right now is related to a variant of principal component analysis that's a sort of cross-validated principal component analysis. Can you tell us about why you started using that technique and the advantages that it has over principal component analysis and, and what you can pull out? Yeah, so I, I think I, I should clarify first what it's for. So so it's not, you don't necessarily need to use it to get the dimensions like PCA. It's more of a way to quantify how much variance is in the top maybe 100 linear dimensions of the data. Um, so it's it's more you're doing this cross-validation step because of exactly this Poisson noise in single neurons. So every neuron is noisy. So if you were to take the top components uh, of that neural data using principal components, for instance, that noise is going to be inside of those principal components and inside the variances that you're estimating um, when you project those principal components onto the data. And so to avoid those problems, um, you can you we we actually do two splits. We split the data in time. So you want to see our so we're looking for components that are are shared across the population. That's what we care about. So we care about neurons that are firing together. We care about how much variance those have, and we say, um, are they firing in the same way in one half of the data versus the other half of the data? Um, and then we also look at uh, to avoid this problem of single neuron noise. We look at the covariance structure between neurons. So we look at population of neurons A versus population neuron B. How similar is that covariance matrix between that set of neurons and one half of data versus the other half of data? And that gives us kind of an upper bound of how the, the best model we could possibly make of the neural data, that's how much variance we could possibly, that's the most variance we could possibly explain um, because of this Poisson variability and so on. Uh, so it's kind of more of a technique to give you the, these kinds of upper bounds for the sorts of models you, you would be making rather than using it um, uh, day to day, I would say. And, and maybe we can group that space a little bit. Now, like I, I liked what Vikash said before. The first thing is for dimensional reduction is what do we care about? 
And we might care about just describing the data and which principal components get there. And the second one is we might care about being good at a machine learning task in which we want to have like variants of that that get us into the right space there. Or we might care about asking, I want to pull out the dimensions out of this data that are interesting in some other way. And so there's like a whole set of approaches there. And then there's the dimension that uh, that that uh, who who uh, who said it uh, earlier? Where you can ask, what's the nature of the data? You know, like there's data for there's dimensionality reduction for Gaussian variables, and there's dimensionality reduction for Poisson variables, and there's like a a lot of these different things that go in there. And those two, in a way, like what do we care about and what do we assume about the data is ultimately what defines where we are. And Carson has these cool approaches of basically finding out how good these things are, no? like, like, uh, of like finding out how we can be how certain about them. Which is, if you want, like this evaluation is the thought part of the dimensionality reduction space. I, I think all, all three of you kind of touched upon an, a, a point that we all, you know, when you're in, in neuroscience and computational neuroscience, especially it's like second nature, but maybe people outside of the field, it's not as obvious. It's just, um, you know, let's say we're, when we're talking about these dimensions, we're typically talking about, let's say a given neuron uh, is, you know, the firing rate or the spiking activity of a neuron or the, you know, calcium activity of a neuron might be one dimension. Um, and the, these neurons are fundamentally, as far as we can tell, you know, from a first pass, they're fairly unreliable. That's what we mean by saying they're noisy. I think that's one thing that, you know, like people maybe outside of neuroscience might not be as used to is just like the measurements you make are, are seem to be very un unreliable. You ask, you know, a monkey to make the same movement twice and look at look at a neuron's response. And, and it's very different from repeat to repeat of the same movement. Or even, you know, in, in sensory areas, there, you know, you... I think things can be more reliable in, in sensory areas for sure, but to some degree, there's there's just this fundamental amount of variability and unreliability that we in neuroscience have have just gotten used to, and so we have you know been working with these techniques at the single neuron level exactly, and it seems to be that a lot of this low dimensional structure that we're so focused on extracting is more reliable than the individual responses of the responses of individual neurons. Vikash, we talked about um, principal component analysis, and certainly there are a lot of sophisticated methods for dimensional reduction. But one of the most interesting methods, um, random projections, is actually the, in some ways the dumbest possible method, but has been the basis for some really interesting work that um, you know, your former advisor, Krishna Shinoy, and, and Surya Ganguly have done on um, kind of latent dimensionality uh, in and and as it relates to test complexity. Can you can you talk a little bit about how um, they took this framework of random projections and uh, and you know kind of built on that? Sure. So I this this work is th their work is very theoretically driven and um, I think the they're taking a lot of ideas from the field of compressed sensing where um, they start with this basic idea that you have uh, a set of dimensions uh, that the neural activity lives on. What happens if you are given uh, a random projection in that uh, random being that you have a random set of weights applied to those uh, generating dimensions and you're observing the generating dimensions through this random 
uh, uh, projection of the generating dimensions, what can you infer about the generating dimensions? And one really interesting theoretical finding uh, that, that they've described is that um, you know, the core number of neurons that you need to measure to recover the generating dimensions scales with the complexity of the task. Uh, and by analogy, likely complexity of the stimuli, uh, complexity of what, uh, so in, let me des describe task complexity. So uh, we've been talking about reaching. So uh, actually in, in, in their work, they, they're focused on reaching. Um, and so they describe task complexity with uh, respect to the types of reaches, right? The directions you're reaching, how long those reaches are. And so you can use uh, the nature of those, those reaches to describe a set of dimensions that would allow you to generate those reaches. And what they find is that when you measure from a, a population of neurons, um, you only need to measure approximately those that equivalent number of dimensions um, uh, that you need to measure that equivalent number of neurons. Um, it's a really important theoretical result, but I think it's also important to, uh, to, to dial into what it means empirically. Because, um, you know, to be able to get back to that generating set of, of dimensions, so that would be the truth we're after as scientists, um, you may need to record many, many trials uh, because we've been talking about noise uh, in this conversation. So to be able to get back at the uh, back to seeing those generating dimensions, you you may need to see the process over and over again. So um, one way to shortcut that is to have parallel measures of the process. So um, it isn't that uh, you know the 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 neural neural task dimensionality. Uh, tells you, uh, sorry, the task complexity tells you how many neurons you need to record for a given application. Uh, it provides some theoretical guidance, but if you want to have certainty sooner or certainty in real time, uh, you may need to play uh, with that model. I don't know if that helps. I, I kind of expanded a little bit beyond your question. Yeah, no, I think that that's something that in neural engineers are very interested in right now is how many for a given task how many neurons do we need what is is there a way that we can a priori predict the number of neurons that we'll need in a certain area based on the complexity of the task um i'd be curious if anyone else wants to jump in there well it may, maybe before we get there I, I think maybe we'll get there later but uh i think we should also be asking whether tasks should be the way we look at this problem at all Right, uh, which is you know tasks have been a driving force in neuroscience, partially because we've been limited in our measurement capabilities. So we could we could also invert this question and say, hey, given the capabilities that we're uh, we're creating as a field, uh, should we should we redefine the way we look at tasks? Right? Yeah, but task is important. No, you could say that as long as we always do almost the same thing, and neuroscience has this history of taking behaviors and making it so that they're always almost the same. Like in, mo in motor science, uh, we know that uh, we have lots of labs doing like monkeys only doing this in eight different directions. And it's a very popular idea. 
then it might give us this false impression that everything is very simple because in that local area it kind of is. So I think that we do need to worry about task complexity. You know? Like if we build commercial devices that people will carry in their heads, it's essential for them that it doesn't just work while they do always the same thing, but that it carries over to the rest of their life. And I would suddenly hold that my life contains thousands of different tasks. So, so in a way, do we expect that we need to visit all those tasks to be able to build walking devices? And I think that that is a very important question. Maybe if okay, I, I actually agree with both of you. And I, I think the way I kind of interpreted what uh, Vikash was saying there was uh, we maybe need to ask the question if it even makes sense to characterize the system using these simple tasks and then expect we can build something that will scale based on our knowledge that will generalize excuse me based on our knowledge that we obtain from the simple task so whereas we have you know recording technologies now that where we might be able to record large volumes of data over long time periods maybe the right thing to do is scale up the complexity of the behaviors we're recording from so that whatever kind of representations we study you know span this this large space of a, of a complex system. Put another way, if we if we keep studying, you know, as, as Conrad mentioned, uh, this this classic task in neuroscience, we call it sender out eight, where, um, you know, a human or a monkey will make movements in eight different directions. If we keep studying that, will we ever gain enough knowledge to build something that will work across activities of daily living for somebody who's paralyzed? I think probably not. Carson, I think you've worked with the largest data sets uh, of all of us. I, I'm curious, you know, what, what is your take on this? Yeah, so I, I think coming back to this idea of noise and how many neurons we need to record to overcome this noise, it's a question of whether we can better characterize what we're calling noise first. And maybe we can explain that what I'm calling noise away and then have these underlying latent factors that correspond to the movement, for instance, of the arm. So in the case of mice, not monkeys, uh, that's not been shown, um, we see that the whole brain of the mouse is driven by the behaviors that the mouse does. So for instance, if the mouse is running, visual cortex, which is an area processing images, is activated. Um, if the mouse is whisking, other different neurons in visual cortex are activated. So there's all these different patterns going on while the mouse is seeing images at the same exact time. So this, what people would normally call noise, actually has a certain structure that we can in fact, subtract away, um, particularly if it's a linear subspace. And then once we get rid of that, you could think of uh, better characterizing these latents, or you might want to use that data um, in some cases. Building on uh, Kirsten's response, um, I think we, we have to think very carefully about this, this kind of classic definition of signal versus noise. I think in, in some ways, it's, the de classic definitions are driven by being task-centric. Right? When you're task-centric, there is something you can repeat. Right? There, there's a critical set of variables that need to be repeated across uh, trials of that task. Um, and you know, as Jason, Chetan was saying, we, we might need to completely move away from tasks. I think we're all kind of suggesting that, that framework or thinking in that direction. Um, and as soon as you move away from tasks and you're, you're kind of in quote-unquote real-world behavior, there's very little repeatability, right? I mean, even if I, if I, you know, every morning I make coffee in a certain way, I, yeah, I might have my fixed ritual, but the the exact environment is is different, right? The the you know, 
the temperature is different, what's on TV, what's on the radio while I'm making that cup of coffee is going to change, right? There, there, there is no repeatability in the real world, right? There's always variation. Um, and that it, in the brain, what we're calling signal versus noise, I think we have to be really careful because some of what we're calling noise may just be variability in the environment or subtle variations in the behavior that aren't accounted for in our task variables. Yeah, so, so to be honest about it, noise is the part of the data that we don't understand. <laughs> and that could be the things in the data that we don't understand. Yet, all the things that are truly ununderstandable, and I don't think we know it at the moment. Potentially, sort of, some of that would come out if something that's truly, you know, what we would think of as noise, like a, a kind of random process, would be relatively unstructured. But I guess a lot of the you know, things related to confounding variables, you would expect to have some some sort of structure, right? Reflecting that they were, yeah, even if you don't know exactly what that kind of confounding influence is. Can, can you tease that out? Is it, Conrad, you're, you're, well, you're uh, shaking your head. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the reason why I was smiling is neuroscientists call about, uh, talk about noise correlations. Noise correlation means neurons do something together and I cannot predict that based on maybe what the stimulus is or what I'm, what the animal is doing or something like that. Carson's work has nicely shown us that in parts that's because we don't really understand what the animal is doing because traditionally we're like, yeah, that's the stimulus. We know which sound we are playing to the animal. Why would anyone or what visual stimuli why, uh, we play, why would anyone think that like movement matters? <laughs> in a way, like Carson and her co-workers are like nicely showing like it matters for everything. And uh, so, so, so basically when your scientists talk about noise correlation, they say of the signal that we don't understand there's a correlation. Now, to me, that suggests that it's not really noise, that there's something going on. And it could be something simple as like, hey, while I'm in this boring experiment, I'm like imagining the coffee I'll have once I come home. And it's, it just appears as noise because no one can know that right at that moment I talk about I think about coffee. Yeah, I really hope that uh, we as a field can ditch the name noise from noise correlation, you know, hopefully soon, because it's really a misnomer. It's really like we have to assume that everything is stimulus driven or task dependent and nothing else matters. So hopefully we as a field will, will ditch that. But um, I, I think that also kind of gives us a clue at other ways of thinking about signal, which is, um, you know, especially as we start to get these larger and larger recordings, one way you might look at signal is just if I um, if I look at a restricted portion of my recording, uh, what fraction of that is predictive of the other portion of the recording? So like, you know, split your data into train and test or, or whatever, but just at least we can say that like, if this part of the data is informative about this other part of the data, there's some structure there like that we should maybe care about. And, and that might be kind of a, a helpful way of thinking about signal in these large recordings that we're getting at. Yeah, and I think I think you're alluding to that. Those splits they can be both uh, in terms of the dimensions we are talking about. They can also be with respect to time, um, which you know the, the key buzzword being dynamics, right? So um, there, these are perspectives that that are gaining in in popularity, but um, they they are fundamental, right, uh, to to understanding how a system works in the world. Uh, there there is 
you know, we're, we're starting with the assumption that there is some regularity and, and that's about it, right? What sorts of priors have been helpful in, in neural decoding? Um, what, you know, are there examples, what I'm thinking maybe, you know, of, you know, treating this, treating this uh, neural activity as a dynamic system, a dynamical system, and then making certain assumptions about uh, the dynamics. Where, where have we been successful in applying like constraints and priors and, and what has yielded fruit and, and, and where do we think maybe we've been too restrictive in trying to apply our priors? That's a broad question. I, I, have, I have a hard time t- uh, talking about anything that has to do with priors with Conrad on. <laughs> I'd be too embarrassed. To... Uh, why, why? So, 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 but maybe Matt, let's make sure that our audience knows what we mean when we talk about priors. So, um, we usually, when we build decoders or something, we build in some of the aspects that we know about brains. Now, let's list a few of them. Now, like, what are the priors? We believe that there exists a relatively low-dimensional manifold of neural activity that matters. We believe that a spike sent by a neuron at one point of time means something very similar to the spike being sent at just like a millisecond later or something. We believe uh, we believe that for any given decoding task, most neurons are probably mostly irrelevant. So we be, we have all these like prior knowledge about properties of the world, and uh, by building in some of them we can build better systems than not building in these intuitions. So, uh, so and, and the reason why, uh, is, uh, relates to what you said earlier, Matt, where you can say, um, it's, it's, it's basically, we have this, uh, this problem of, if we're in high dimensions, we have the cause of dimensionality. It's very hard for us to know what the right solutions are. By us building in things that we already know about the brain in a way, we make that problem easier because there's effectively fewer possible decoders that we're willing to admit. Conrad, can I just quickly say, not everyone makes the assumption though that the data is low dimensional. So I have to add that. Um, in terms of sensory, so in terms of motor systems and output and of behavior and limb movement, that's that seems like a relatively reasonable assumption. But in terms of our representation of the sensory world, like the images you see, you're seeing many mi- millions of pixels every time you move your head. Um, and that representation and how to do object recognition and, and see and figuring out where things are in the world, that it's helpful to be in a high dimensional space to do that. So I will say in that context, we don't assume a low dimensional space. But but yeah, otherwise, I, I OK. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I totally agree with Carson there. No, like um, the idea that our thoughts are very low dimensional is just insane if you start thinking it through. No, like clearly the way we experience our visual world is very high dimensional. So, uh, so when I say low dimensional, I'm not saying, and I think most of my colleagues aren't saying is like really low dimensional. It might be a little more low dimensional than the neurons could be if we had all of them do their independent things. And yet it's, Low dimensionality relative to the number of neurons participating in the encoding. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Carsten, would, 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 could, you, could you be willing to accept that it's at least a little bit smaller than the number of neurons that we have? Uh, maybe a little bit, but it's still open for debate. I think until we have a good model of, of how uh, the brain is encoding these visual stimuli, we can't really say how 
how many dimensions are being shared am- among the neurons and and get a real a, a true number on it that's below a large number <laughs> because right now the linear dimensionality is very large i should say so there's the that you can think about squishing things in in various ways and there might be a, a lower dimensional non-linear manifold that we're not seeing as well so you could probably cap it though based on correlations across neurons so you have a lot of neuronal neuronal firing is correlated enough that it's it, it can't be the number of neurons. It has to be smaller than that. But it could be close to that number because there can be many dimensions. You, they could be correlated, but there could be many dimensions that each neuron participates in. So you're, you're right. Like there will be di- directions that multiple neurons participate in, but that neuron could participate in many different directions. So it could still be as high dimensional as the number of neurons, even though there are correlations in the population. Um, but but yeah no that is a it is a good point and and it could be very different from area brain area to brain area too so I'm talking very much about my experience with visual cortex. So Carson, I just I don't want to um, uh, misspeak about your work, but uh, kind of one of one of the key takeaways I got was that um, you know as as uh, you look at higher and higher dimensions, there are lower and lower fractions of the total variance of the signal, which means we need larger and larger like if we have our restricted you know. 100 channel array or something like that, I'm very unlikely to see that the data is high dimensional because those higher dimensions are such a small component of my signal power that I might not be able to distinguish them from noise with my, you know, minuscule recording. So I guess, you know, I, I, uh, um, I would be very surprised if the motor system was high dimensional in the same way the visual system was. But I'm actually just not even sure if we've been able to test that question given kind of the techniques we've brought to bear on the problem. I guess that's the other th- that also kind of raises the question of maybe the the dimensionality may not be that relevant. You could have 10,000 dimensions, but if all of the power is in the first five dimensions, um, it might be more, that might be more salient. Um, if, if there's such, such little power distributed across the kind of... I think there we're, we're starting to get into cor- correlation versus causation land, which is... That's Conrad's favorite topic, isn't it? Yeah, you, you don't wa- you don't want to prompt me on causation. <laughs> and I will pretend for this time that I didn't hear that word. Carson mentioned kind of nonlinear manifolds, and I wanted to give Chathan a, a chance to talk about LVADs and and some of the you know the introduction of neural networks to to do uh, dimensional reduction. And I'd be really curious to get the group's thoughts about how that differs from more kind of traditional linear methods like PCA what we've learned from that. Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, I'd say this actually also relates, I think, to your previous question about kind of um, priors and how they might be useful for modeling data. You know, one of the things that a lot of sort of classic dimensionality reduction techniques um, maybe don't do very well is take into account structure over time, uh, which is, you know, let's take PCA or another technique like factor analysis, for example. both of them sort of assume that the data, uh, you know, can basically change arbitrarily from time point to time point. Um, so, you know, you could you could shuffle your data in time and get the exact same result from PCA as you did from the original data. And we know that's not true about neural data. We know that there's very clear structure in time. So if you know that the neurons are doing something right now, they're not going to be doing something completely different in the next time step, right? There's some relation over time. Um, so, you know, Matt, I think uh, what what we did in, in our LFADS paper was just say, um, 
effectively what we were asking was how could we try to model some of that temporal structure? How could we um, uh, essentially, what, what type of prior could we develop on how neural activity changes over time? Um, and a reasonable prior is, is that of, uh, well, we treat the system as a dynamical system, which, you know, Actually, if you get down to the details of that, it's not really saying much. But um, a dynamical system is one in which the future activity is predictable based on the current activity and potentially any inputs that might come into the system. Um, so basically, that basically what we're saying is, um, can we develop a system that can take current activity and predict what's going to happen in the future? So if we believe that activity has a lot of structure in time. Uh, that's a that's a pretty good idea, um, and we did that with recurrent neural networks, which are themselves dynamical systems. They're nonlinear dynamical systems, so, so they can model uh, nonlinear changes over time. So that effectively gives us a way to capture, uh, you know, structure in the activity that that changes over time. Happy to go into more technical details, but what did we learn from applying nonlinear methods that that we didn't know? using linear methods like what what does that bring to the table because obviously those models are they're more complicated to train they're more complicated to understand but you know often in often in machine learning neural networks end up being better and 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 i guess from from a functional standpoint that's great from an understanding standpoint do we do we feel like we know what elvad's elvad's brought that was new? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I don't know that um, that nonlinear is really the important thing to consider. I think it's really more uh, taking into account structure over time, which is a little bit harder to do with with traditional methods. Yeah, as as a as a Elfad's user, can kind of comment on 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 a few few things that that come to my mind uh, in, in terms of the structure of that model. I mean, nonlinearity across time is. Is important in, in terms of the expressiveness of the dynamics, the types of dynamics you can generate. But I think there's a, another important comparison point relative to other techniques that uh, bring in dynamics. Uh, one of the common strategies is to bring in a form of linear dynamics. And uh, many of those approaches also assume stationarity, that you're going to see um, uh, constancy in the, the nature of those dynamics. Um, whereas uh, you know, the approach that you guys took with LFADS, um, that particular model and the way it is applied in many of the early papers does allow for, for non-stationarity as well. Um, and, uh, in, you know, we were talking about getting away from trials, but coming back to trials, most, in most cases, uh, these approaches are being applied to trials where there's, there's a key beginning and end uh, uh, that are defined and different things are happening at different time markers. And um, LFADS and its generation of dynamics can find structure related to absolute position in time, uh, whereas many of the other methods couldn't. And um, the, 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 the types of structure can learn are way more complicated than uh, that of the existing methods. So it allows it to be more expressive. And um, one of the key hallmarks of, of success is that um, we've been talking about dimensionality reduction. Well, how do you know if your dimensionality re reduction technique works well? Well, uh, one measure of success is how well does it represent the high dimensional data? 
And that's something we know from, um, Jathan, from your paper and from follow-up work with LFADs that others have done, that in many cases, it can, um, the factors that it generates, the representations across time, uh, are, are, they better capture what was happening in the high dimensional space. Uh, and so that, that, at least as a user of LFADs, that's something that gives me confidence in the technique. Sure. Yeah, and I think um, maybe kind of relating to the, the the topic of decoding that's that's been brought up. I, I think one of the things we often wonder with dimensionality reduction techniques is, um, you know, is this just a convenient way for us to visualize our data, or is there anything you know more meaning? Is there any reason to really do it other than we can't plot anything higher than three dimensions, right? Um, and I think one of the things that was pretty surprising to us when we tried the LFADS method is that we're taking um, these spike trains, um, and as we've all talked about throughout the, this conversation, you know, this, on a given trial, on a given observation of your neurons' activity, it seems pretty noisy. It's, it seems pretty variable across trials. So then we, you know, train a, a, a recurrent neural network to try to describe that data, and effectively we throw out things that can't be captured by the structure of that uh, network. So things that, you know, we have this spiking activity, but instead we say we're going to describe it by this firing rate as if this firing rate reflects the underlying dynamics. What we found was that the kind of predictions from that model ended up being really informative about behavior on a trial-to-trial basis. So even though kind of the model itself didn't know anything about, so let's say, the, the behaviors that the animal was doing, we just found that by like finding a lower dimensional representation that's captured by a nonlinear dynamical system, that was really informative of the moment-by-moment behavior of, of the animal. So we could decode arm velocities with much higher accuracy, let's say, than we previously could have. So that kind of, I, I think for me, it was a little bit eye-opening to know that like all this dimensionality reduction stuff that, that we see, um, it's not just kind of a convenient way to visualize our data, but actually is more informative about other aspects like animals' behaviors. I'm going to try a, 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 admittedly, I think it'll be a very imperfect analogy. Good, then we can all criticize it. Yeah, one, one that comes to my mind quite often, which is, you know, you, you, you look at our understanding of planetary motion, right? Um, there were the older models that put the Earth at the center of the universe and, and said, okay, let's model planetary motion with the idea that the Earth sits uh, at the center of the universe and we want to model all these celestial bodies based on that supposition and you know you can do it the models get increasingly complex it gets harder to explain the underlying principles and the underlying structure Um, or you know you can shift at least within our solar system to the sun being the center and you get a simpler explanation and i think in in some ways chathan what you were describing um generating what you you guys found that you could generate this set of factors that were a better explanation of movement uh, or a more robust explanation of movement has some similarities, right? It's not, it's not quite the same because we, we can't see those planets, right? We can't measure them directly, um, but it's um, in some ways a simpler rule set, right? That gets you from where you're starting and where you want to end up. I just want to say, do you feel like the way that you've you've modeled it as a dynamical system, and we're going back to this idea of how high dimensional the system is, do you do you think because it you think it's a dynamical system, this is the way that the neurons are connected in some way? And if you had a different task, do you think you'd find similar factors? And is that something you've looked into? 
That's a that's a really great question. Um, I think um, I don't know. We we're trying. Uh, one of the challenges is that it's honestly hard to get data which is more complex than what we see with like complex two dimensional reaches, but with enough structure that we can tell kind of like the signal from the noise. You know, getting back to what we've all been talking about, which is that we we often use tasks as a crutch to like you know discriminate signal from noise in our data. So uh, you know, I I don't know what kind of the ideal is here. We've been working with um, Conrad's old buddy uh, Lee Miller at Northwestern, who's been um, setting up these amazing uh, recording setups where they're uh, monitoring monkeys wirelessly. So you can monitor the monkey as it runs around its home cage. And, you know, you're streaming out neural activity, you're streaming out muscle activity at the same time. And so what we are, are trying to find out is as you kind of get to these more, much more complex behaviors, um, do we still see one, like the dimensionality, how, how does it relate um, between like kind of the in-lab behaviors that we're also used to versus the complex behaviors? And two, uh, can we build decoders that give you that kind of that predictability across multiple behaviors. I'd say it's an open question and it's certainly a challenging one. Conrad, there was recently an influential uh, professor of computational neuroscience that tweeted that um, that manifolds were a fad. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm curious for your take on that. So let's, let's give a little bit of background there. No, so um, the first thing is there is a community that often likes uh, manifolds and and manifolds is basically just a term used by the community that uses dimensionality reduction. So, uh, so often if people say there are manifolds in the brain, they just mean we can run dimensionality reduction and see interesting things there. So, there is this split between the people who often work on the motor on motor cortex and who really like dimensionality reduction because it just turns out that we study low dimensional behavior which seems to be really well represented in a low dimensional projection of things and then people that say maybe work more on the vision side or whole brain imaging side of brains uh, or whole brain recording side of things where it looks like all things are very very high dimensional though we, we, we saw that in, in a way like uh, Chathan and the, and the motor movement community like the low dimensionality idea, like people like Carson who work more like on visual things, like like suddenly have trouble with that. And um, the question is for uh, for some people, uh, dimensionality reduction and the resulting representations, which they call manifolds, obtain the role of being a model of how the brain works. I think a critique of the dimensionality reduction slash manifold idea is that in a way it doesn't really produce an understanding. Now I can project it in low dimensions and I can say if I project it in two dimensions every time you like you like move your hand forward the dimen uh, the this this like a movement that looks like this. It's very hard to convert statements of like that from dimensionality reduction into statements of how something works in the brain. I think why uh, uh, the reason why the idea that 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 like uh, manifolds are fat is in a way justified is because people take dimensionality reduction, which is a very useful technique. Every neuroscientist needs that in their 
toolkit, but elevated to the status of a theory of how the brain works, which just hides the real thing because like something makes the dynamics and that's then like where it happens. But like it 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 kind of it's 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 a weird way of producing a non theory theory of the brain and in that sense I think the critique that it is a fat seems justified to me. Yeah, I, I think I am on the side where I, I think you're not getting a causal model of how the neural activity is working and you really have these strong constraints. Like basically the, the question I just posed to Chaitan as well, that you don't know if these are the modes of the system that it's always exploring. Um, and, and so, so yeah, I think, I, I think that's why we're at such an exciting point in neuroscience where we can record this really large scale data and have all these different behaviors and we can really start to answer these questions if if a, a low dimensional manifold really is where neural activity is sitting, then we really, we need models that recapitulate these manifolds and so on. Or maybe we need a, a, a new way of looking at neural activity. Like any tool, these machine learning tools that we're applying more readily in the neurosciences, we have to be really careful in the way we wield it. We still need to be hypothesis driven. Uh, you know, it, it, if, if you're searching for a needle in a big enough haystack, everything, you're, you're going to find tons of things that look like needles, right? Um, and um, I, I think that that's where the danger is. And I, I Conrad, I, I believe that that is what you were alluding to, which is if we use these tools in an unguided way and we're not um, hypothesis driven, we're not query driven, uh, it could lead us to um, malimpressions, right? Malimpressions that, that aren't the fundamental truth. They're, they're just a simplifying description of the data. Um, um, and I think really to understand what's at play, uh, we have to bring causality back in, right? And um, we, we need to be able to tie these models to causal perturbations. Um, you know, that, that, that has been a lifeblood in neuroscience, right? That's how we advance our knowledge is by, by introducing causal perturbations. And, and these techniques don't get us away from that need. I was just going to maybe... Um... I don't disagree with anything that's been said, but to push back a little bit, um, I think one one of the examples that I've seen that has been really compelling in terms of kind of believing uh, in these low low dimensional representations that we found, I think of you know Aaron Batista and Byron Yu's work in studying learning um, in monkeys using using BCIs, and one of the key things that that they found in some of their experiments a few years ago was that if you, you know, train a monkey, uh, you know, a monkey's controlling a cursor using a BCI, let's say, and you look at the low dimensional structure of the data, uh, just using factor analysis in their case. Um, so, you know, that's telling you that essentially there are these patterns of covariation amongst the neural population. These, you know, neurons fire together in certain ways. Well, with the BCI, because you're directly, uh, you know, accessing the neural activity, you can change the relationship, you can change your decoder. So you can change essentially what the monkey has to do in order to make the cursor move on the screen. So the key, one of their key experiments was just testing whether, you know, they, they tried decoders that either, um, that sort of change the relationship between neural activity and uh, the cursor's movements but they could either preserve the correlation structure, meaning preserving kind of the low dimensional representation, or they could break the correlation structure. And what they found was that it was fairly easy for the monkeys to learn to move the cursor as long as you preserve that correlation structure. But once you break it, within a day, it was almost impossible for the monkeys to learn uh, kind of new ways of controlling the cursor. And 
um, you know, maybe that's not causal in the same sense of like dropping, you know, optogenetics or dropping, you know, in electrical stimulation, but it does say there is something kind of special about that structure in that the monkey's ability to produce new patterns of neural activity was somehow fundamentally constrained by this low dimensional structure. And they've had, a, you know, several, I think, follow-up studies looking at long-term learning and how a monkey can learn to break that correlational structure. But to me, it was really compelling uh, evidence that there's something meaningful about these representations that we're looking at. I just wanted to respond because um, yeah, this might just be semantics, but I, I do see the um, the experiments that, that uh, Byron and Aaron did as causal perturbation experiments because they are generating a new control system and they are testing the animal's ability to engage with that control system. So I think I think that's a new type of causal experiment um, that BCI enables. And that's true. It is, and it's important to note that that's a very you know um, it's uh, there's a long a rich history of studying like motor learning like with normal motor control, but it's very hard to make exactly that perturbation with kind of a standard experiment where you have the entire system in between you know, neural activity in the, th in the thing being controlled, as opposed to a BCI where you're directly accessing the neural activity and you can manipulate how it relates to the thing being controlled. I, I mean, Aaron Batista has pioneered a new kind of experiment that, that like of that type we've never seen before. And I think it's like wonderful and it's the best evidence we have in that area. But, but let, 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 me, let me try to argue that it doesn't in a way that that or explain why I would interpret it slightly differently. So let's take that experiment. We have two neurons. Most of the t let's say these two neurons have strong correlation. Let's assume we only record from two neurons because the experiment still works with two neurons. And what we find is that usually those two neurons are either both very active or both not very active at all. In that case, uh, what they what the equivalent of the experiment says is if I build a decoder that will only do what the animal wants if they're both high. That's easy for the animal and it will only do what the animal wants if one is high and the other one is low. That's hard for the experiment, uh, for the animal. Now, the question is where does the variance come from? Which is in a way like the ultimate question for dimensional reduction that we're discussing today. Now, if we assume that it comes from the equivalent of thoughts or plants or something like that, then what that just means is that the reason why these two neurons are active often at the same time is because there's thoughts processes that often happen that make both of them go up or both of them go down and thought processes that regu that rarely happen that make one go up and the other one go down and so in that sense the way i interpret the experiment is mostly that it shows that it's easy for an animal to basically produce one of the thought patterns that they often do and it is hard for the animal to produce a thought pattern that they rarely do and so in that sense, like that highlights what the causal problem is. Now, like this is a case of so-called confounding that we have variables, namely thought patterns or intentions that drive the variables of interest. They're, they're therefore confounded. And in that space, the animal can arguably do control by imagining, okay, let's imagine that I try and throw uh, something at like the experimentalists uh, and imagine that I try to move my hand forward and um, and those seem to be the natural search space in which the animal would try and explore things. But those are amazing experiments. It's like really one of the things that get me most excited in all of motor control at the moment. Jetham, they're great. 
Vikash, you see why I was trying not to use the word causal? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, it's an overloaded term, right? Um, it, that, that's where the semantics come in, right? Um, and I, I think as a field, as, as we generate these new techniques and these new uh, paradigms, we're going to have to refine the language, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty difficult because David Hume basically killed the, the word causal uh, a long time ago. And yet causality is still a kind of useful assumption in our everyday lives that if we do something and something happens that that we caused it. And it's even it's even a useful kind of philosophical cheat in experimental science. But it's still kind of a cheat. So, so, so I, I'm not sure why you'd say that. No, like there are domains where causality is perfectly well defined, let's say randomized clinical trials where it's like half of the people gets the COVID vaccine, the other half doesn't get the the COVID vaccine. No one, neither the people who treat it nor the guys that get it know is it one or the other. And ultimately, I think we are all very much, I'm personally so much looking forward to getting the COVID vaccine. I really hate like being in isolation. I I don't like anything about about the pandemic and 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 i will have absolutely no trouble like accepting the causal injection of the covid vaccine makes it less likely i'm going to get covid the question is kind of how far can we drive that principle no and like at the same time i think all of you neuroscientists here you'll be perfectly fine if i go in in a neuron and i sometimes inject a few extra spikes i record from another neuron and I find that when I inject current, it makes the other neuron regularly spike. We'll be fine calling that there's a causal influence of the stimulated neuron on the neuron that we record. So, so, so kind of like the, the like it's all complicated philosophically for me. Causality just means if we go in and perturb the system. What are the things that change? And and in many domains where, where I do work, that seems perfectly well-defined. And it embodies something that we believe in. No? Like it's in, in a way, like the reason why a lot of people do the research they do in neuroscience is because they believe we can like cure diseases and so forth. That's all causal questions. If we do the procedure, will it make you better than if we don't do the procedure? If we stimulate that brain area, will you be, will your Parkinson's disease be better? So those are real causal questions. I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to interpretation, right, which which is still open um, with these new paradigms. So, you know, I, I think we can we can argue about how far um, to take uh, a result and, and uh, the level of conclusion you can have about the fundamentals. So, you know, you can in, in the case of um, the, the work that we're talking about uh, that that Aaron and Byron completed uh, there, there, there is this change to a control system right so there's a there there is a causal change to that control system but whether i think what we're questioning now is whether that tells us something fundamental about the underlying biological neural network right and i i think that is open to debate and um you know the interpretation is not clear hopefully it leads to follow-on experiments uh that 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 get us to those answers Coming back to my interest, my selfish interest in, in BCI, um, Vikash and Chetan and Conrad, most of your, you know, analysis has been, you know, in the hundreds of neurons territory. 
Carson, you're now, you have the privilege of now kind of sitting with the most exciting data sets, you know, probably in neuroscience, and, and you're making a lot of headway with those in the thousands of neurons territory. I'm curious what changes when you're working with thousands instead of hundreds, and, and as when we get to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, um, does anything change? Uh, are there practical challenges? Do you, do you run into hard problems? Where, where, where are we going as the experimental capabilities get much better? Yeah, so I, I think you are able to take the task domain into this higher dimensional realm, definitely. So if you, have a, if you only have a few neurons and you have this inherent noise in the, neuro, in the single neuron activity, not trying not to use the word noise in, in the wrong way, but if you have this single neuron independent noise, um, it can be very hard to figure out what the circuit is doing with only a few neurons or what it's encoding from the external world. Uh, so it really opens up the possibility of studying how the brain is encoding a really complex uh, representation, like the natural world, for instance, of the images we see as, as we move around. So I think that's what it, it allows. It gives us the possibility to study that, whereas before we're just having these glimpses of, of a few neurons and we can't, we can't take advantage of this idea of, for instance, like averaging over neurons to reduce the noise. So like if we find this dimension in space where like maybe these 10 neurons are always active at the same time, if one of those neurons isn't firing on a, on a given trial, that's fine because we're taking the average of those 10 neurons. And so we can reliably trial by trial at moment by moment, second by second, say it, it, what the population is doing. Whereas if you were only recording a couple neurons, you wouldn't be able to find those those spaces where, where neurons are covariating together. Are there practical challenges to working with data sets of that size? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I would say we, we also do principal components analysis uh, often to reduce the noise in the data and then try to study the principal components of the data. Um, there's practical challenges in terms of you're trying to fit an encoding model and you have many neurons and it's going to be very slow. Um, I mean, I think all of the challenges are because we don't really understand the structure of the data. So it comes back to, we need to figure out these dimensionality reduction techniques that give us, if there is a low dimensional nonlinear manifold, we need to be able to find it. And if we're going to find it, it will be easier to find it if we have more neurons. Um, so I would say it, I, I would say the challenges are challenges that were present before. Um, we got this big data. What do you think would be the most exciting experimental capabilities um, to see in the next five to 10 years? What do you think would really change your ability to ask kind of new questions? What would you like to see of the hardware engineers that are tuning in? I mean, I, I would say I want I want all my neurons at at millisecond precision. Okay. <laughs> so my, but I don't know what, what other people want. So, so you guys know that I'm into causality. What I would love is the ability to stimulate lots of neurons while recording from lots of neurons. That would allow me to get at causal effects because if you randomly stimulate one neuron, then all the neurons that correlate to it, kind of by definition, that correlate to the stimulation, that could be random, all the neurons that correlate to it must be causally affected by that neuron. So it's, it's we, 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 if we could do high dimensional read-write, we could ask a lot of the causal questions that like I just happen to obsess about. But the number of neurons you would need for that is also very large, right? Because the probability of getting a connected pair is relatively low. 
or what do you think comrade yeah so so the, the it depends on how we think about it now like you could say if i if you allow me to stimulate one neuron and i want to have a single synapse uh, connection and the probability is very low the alternative is to say if i stimulate somewhere i'm going to hit some local neurons and i'm going to also like record like the activity of a bunch of neurons that i will effectively be able to average over in which case i could basically build like lower dimensional causal models that are still fully causal models that are just not at the level of this is what a single neuron does uh, but i think it would be a super cool experiment so once that capability comes in like give me a call so matt i i think um actually relating to one of your previous questions like what kinds of technologies would we like to see what I love, you know, I, th I think in neuroscience in general is is sort of moving away from the model where a given lab will study a given brain area in a given behavior. But I especially love that we're starting to see a lot of multi-area recordings. And I hope that, you know, having multi-area recordings will allow us to start to test whether there are kind of precise timing effects in between areas where, you you know, you see activity in one area does it drive activity in another area with low latency? And hopefully, you know, if we can also go in perturb, we can say causally that activity in this area drives activity in this other area, you know, causally with perturbations. So that's a case where I think, you know, we might be able to make measurements where uh, smaller or uh, short time scales matter when we're talking about like inter-area communication, for example. So um, kind of wearing more of my, my neural engineering hat um, and thinking about designing practical uh, devices. What I'd like to see are, um, for, for the science side of that development, uh, are devices that give me access uh, to multiple areas, as Chathan said as well, because that allows us to explore uh, a wider search space of potential models uh, to get prostheses working, as well as multi-scale recording. Um, you know, we have been quite limited in uh, the sampling that we've done of Cortex. And here I'm being Cortex-centric. Um, uh, but even within Cortex, uh, we, we target um, typically for these devices uh, specific layers uh, and um, uh, focus pretty heavily, at least in this group, on intracortical recording. And uh, I think other strategies have not been uh, tested uh, well enough uh, to know um, how well they'd work in an engineering context. So here, I'd, I'd like devices that give me surface recordings as well as uh, laminar recordings, but across many areas um, and many nuclei uh, so that I could test alternatives uh, like electrocorticography style alternatives versus depth alternatives. Maybe we don't need these multi-area recordings if we're additionally doing non-neural recordings of what a person is doing, like for instance, eye position and so gaze and kind of like arousal and these other things. It, it might be interesting to see what kinds of signals those drive and how correlated those are to the types of movements that people are making that might be, you might find those signals with multi-area recordings, but then only need a single area recording to to ultimately create a good BCI. Yeah, I, I think maybe in complement with the neural devices, I think based on a lot of what we've been talking about, I mean, I think I think we just want 
systems that would record every aspect of behavior along with every single neuron. I mean, that's the dream, right? We want, we want, we want all of the data about the entire state of the organism up on a cloud server that we can now run virtual experiments against. Can you make that happen, Matt? Uh, add to that the direct recording of the thoughts and dreams that you're having. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all very much for your time. This has been a real pleasure. Yes. So...